Lord our God, we have come to declare that we love you. That we love you for who you are and for what you've done. We've come, Father, to declare that we indeed are sinners. We come to declare that in you, in your great love, we have hope. You've shown us in Christ how far you're willing to go to express your love and compassion to us. And Father, you have in Christ, through your love, made possible the way of salvation. And we pray that you will now pour out your Holy Spirit in power and grace upon each of us. And lead us in the way of righteousness. Father, we pray today for, for every family here, and particularly families who have come to visit a child or a grandchild, a brother or a sister. We pray that as the weekend winds down, that you will fill those who leave today with a sense of trust about your watchful care over the student left here. And fill each student with strength to keep growing and learning and maturing in relationship with you and with others. Father, we pray for each of us today, and we ask that you would heal all those who are struggling with sickness. Lift the hearts of those who are depressed. Point the way to those who are confused. We ask that you will embrace all who are lonely and afraid. And support everyone who today is grieving. Grieving for a lost home or lost position or lost time or lost loved ones. Father, we pray that you will show us how to be loving and gentle and generous with all that you have given us. Make us peacemakers in a world so often devoid of peace. And Father, help us to savor the small moments you bring to each of us. Father, we do pray for our world. We pray for your grace, particularly today upon the nation of Honduras and the great struggles that they are facing. We pray that you will uh, use us as a part of the process of helping them. And Father, we pray for our nation. We're just a little over a week away from the time of our election. And we pray for your grace in the midst of it. Father, during this time of worship, make us people who who speak your name with our words and with our lives. That we might give you glory. That we might worship you. Pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one from whom we learn the motto for prayer, 
which we now pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Would you uh, please stand for the reading of the gospel and remain standing for the hymn that follows. Our New Testament reading for this morning is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, 9 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers and evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord.
be merciful to us. Merciful enough to, to teach us and to convict us, and to encourage us. This we pray in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I've mentioned over the past few weeks, we are a society that um, is attracted to games. And we play all kinds of games. We play games with, with dice and with cards, video games, arcade games. And we play a lot of board games. And I've discovered that games, I guess a lot like novels and visual arts and music and, and uh, movies, that they, they have, say a lot to us about the human condition. And they say a lot to us, reveal to us, they're a window for us, into understanding some of the truths that God wants to communicate to us. That's what have been the point of the sermons as we've been working our way through these games this fall. And so we've looked at some of those ideas from the game of life and Scrabble and Jenga and memory and Clue. And, and now today, we want to talk about the game of Sorry. The earliest variation of Sorry came to the United States from England about 1934. And uh, there are many people who believe it's based on the ancient Indian game Parcheesi, which was created about 500 B.C. So that, this might be the oldest game, that, if you follow that thread, that any of us would play. As we've witnessed with many other board games as, uh, in, in, in current culture, uh, marketing is always at work, and so they're always trying to sell us a new game. And so there are a variety of versions of Sorry, and these are just a few of them. Disney, sorry. There's Spider-Man 3, sorry, as opposed to just Spider-Man, I guess. Uh, Pokemon. There's a Disney Splash Mountain Theme Park Collector's Edition, sorry. There's also a nostalgia version of sorry. It's uh, in this wooden box, and it's intended to look old, even though it's new. And I guess that appeals to the retro stuff that we see all the time in, in our society. But whatever game you, whichever one of these versions you play, it's still the same game. And the objective of Sari is really pretty simple. Each player has four pawns or pieces, and they all are in start, and you're trying to get them around the board to the little tower that ends at the top circle as home. And you draw cards, and the cards have numbers on them, and you move around the board. Everybody begins in the start circle, and you can only get out of start if you draw a card that has a one or a two on it. Now, that's frustrating enough, but there's only nine total ones and twos together combined in the deck of cards. Now, you shuffle through the deck as you go along, but, but it's not easy to get out of start, and that's why the game, I think, is interesting and frustrating and uh, competitive. And In addition, you have a, a sorry card, and uh, this card says that if you have a person in your start circle, you can take them out and put it where somebody else's piece is on the board. Now, that's good enough because you get your guy out. The best part of it is that you get to smack them back to their start spot. And, of course, when you do so, you very politely say, sorry. Um, and, uh, and then you have uh, one of the other rules of sorry is that you can't have two pieces on the same square. So if you move your piece and it lands on a square where somebody else's piece lies, you kick them back to their start spot. And one of the ways of doing that is they have these little slide uh, places on each side of the board, and four, two of them on each side of the board. And if you land on the, the little triangle at the end, you get to slide the 
five, four or five spaces down to the circle. And any pieces that are on that green slide or whatever color it is are knocked back. So you're hoping that the thing is full when you get to the triangle and you can knock four or five people back and it helps you win the game. There are, um, as I said, a number of versions of this game. But it's interesting to me that on a number of the, of the boxes through the years, and you know they've, they've created different boxes beginning in the 30s and on through now, but a lot of the boxes say, sorry, the game of sweet revenge. Now, you know, the object then is, in fact, one of the strategies of the game is that you're better off to get somebody else's peace than you are to advance your own peace. And it can become kind of a revenge thing. Now, it does make me wonder why they call the game sorry. You know, it seems to me like you're better off to call it gotcha. Or in your face or something like that. I mean, you know, it, it does, I guess they want to be polite as you are revenging someone. And, and there are two kinds of opponents that you typically are looking to stop and to frustrate in this game. You have the person who is in the lead, and then you have the person against whom you might have a grudge. And whether that grudge is because of something you've done to you in the game or something has nothing to do with the game. You know, a sibling that was mean to you yesterday and you take it out on them by playing the game and knocking their piece off the board. And so you can see how easily games reflect real life. So the game of sorry, I think, opens our eyes in many ways to some things about relationship and the struggle of relationship. Most people uh, in this world realize that at some level, relationships have something to do with, at least healthy relationships, have something to do with forgiveness. And, you know, it, it's something that I think everybody who has, a, a, has common sense about relationships understands that forgiveness is going to need to be a part of that. Don Henley of the Eagles recorded a hit song a few years ago in which he sings about a broken relationship, and he keeps coming back in the chorus to these words, I've been trying to get down to the heart of the matter. But everything changes and my friends seem to scatter. But I think it's about forgiveness. Forgiveness. Forgiveness is something that is important in any kind of relationship we have. But forgiveness is even more essential to what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Paul writes, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other is Christ, God in Christ forgave you. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And Jesus states it even more emphatically. If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will not not forgive your sins. Forgiveness is imperative to being Christian. And, And we know that. I don't think any of us would argue that. We just don't always do it. But we know it. And we hear a lot about forgiveness and the need to forgive, and rightly so. Forgiveness is one of the most amazing human acts that we could ever witness or do. I'm astounded when I I come across a a circumstance where, uh, for instance, a parent is dealing with a child that has been gravely injured by someone and they forgive that person. I'm astounded by that. Forgiveness is important. But what we forget is that most of the time, forgiveness begins with two words. 
Most of the time, forgiveness is initiated with just two words, seven letters and an apostrophe. Just two words, but two words that might well be the most difficult words in the English language for us to say. Just two words. I'm sorry. Now, when you think about forgiveness, offering forgiveness often places us Interestingly enough, in a position of power. We have the choice, will I forgive or will I not? Will I let that person off the hook or will I not? And there's a sense of power with that. And it's it's not unlike having food and deciding, am I going to share that with hungry people or not? Or having money and deciding if I'm going to share that with needy people or not. And when we forgive, we feel pretty good about ourselves. We feel like we've done something noble and, and great, and, and we think to ourselves, that person sure is fortunate that we are forgiving and we're so gracious. And we don't have to forgive, you know. Offering forgiveness can, can make us sometimes feel superior to other people. Look at what they did to me. Look at what they said to me. I'm going to take the high road. I'm going to forgive. I, I've decided to be the bigger person, and I'm going to forgive. And people say, wow, that's amazing. It's amazing that you would be willing to forgive that. And, and we feel good about ourselves when we forgive, and we should, because we're letting go of bitterness and hate that, that eats away at us, and it's imperative that we forgive. But saying I'm sorry is something else entirely. Seeking forgiveness puts us not in a position of power, but in a position of humility and weakness probably the reason we struggle to do it so much. We don't like feeling powerless. We don't like feeling weak and humble. But that's what we are. We come to the person and say, I'm sorry. Saying I'm sorry is, in the simplest terms, owning up to what you did. It's acknowledging that your words, your actions hurt someone. And we aren't all that good at acknowledging our sin against other people. We're good at ignoring our sin against other people. And, and, and we're good at justifying our sin against other people. And, and, and we're very good at deflecting our responsibility about our sin against other people. But we're not all that good about acknowledging our sin against other people. To say I'm sorry is to acknowledge that we have hurt another person. To say I'm sorry is to accept responsibility for our actions To say, I'm sorry, is to realize that the crack in the relationship is as much my fault as it is anyone else's fault. It's acknowledging that none of us are perfect. Through the years, I have counseled, I guess, probably hundreds of people about broken relationships. Spouses that no longer connect, parents who who have given up on their children, and children who have, who have cut themselves off from their parents, siblings who don't talk anymore, friends who used to be so close but now would, would cross the street in order to avoid a conversation. And there are many things in common about these various circumstances, but there's one constant in all of them. No matter what's happened, no matter what's been said, no matter how deep the pain All of them have one thing in common. The problem 
is never 100% one person's fault and 0% the other person's fault. That may not be 50-50. might be 60-40. might be 75-25. might be 90-10. But it's never 100% zero. And I know that's true because none of us are perfect. And that means that at some point in the relationship, we've done something we shouldn't have done. Or we didn't do something we should have done. We've spoken words for no other reason than to get back at the person who hurt us. We've kept silent instead of opening our heart and trying to get to to the center of the problem. We've refused to listen when the other person wanted to open up to us. We're all guilty. And if we're all guilty, then some form, in some way, God is prompting us to take responsibility for our part of the problem. He's prompting us to say, I'm sorry. But we are often so hesitant to say those words. I think sometimes we're hesitant to say, I'm sorry, because we believe that we're justified in what we did or what we said. We tend to call that righteous indignation. I had a good reason for that. Sometimes you have to crack a few eggs to make an omelet. If I hurt someone to get to the truth, then so be it. The truth is more important than people's feelings. The truth is more important than than well-being of some person. The truth is more important than people. Ten years ago, on the evening of October 23rd, 1998, Dr. Barnett Slepian was standing at the sink of his home in Amherst, and he just returned from synagogue, and as he was making himself some soup, he was shot through the window and died a few hours later. James Kopp was eventually arrested and convicted of the murder in the The front page of this past Friday's Buffalo News had an article about the 10th anniversary of the shooting. The case took on national significance because Dr. Slepian was an abortion provider. And James Cott believed that he was justified in his actions. And there were other people, even at that time, who felt he was justified in his actions. One anti-abortion leader virtually blamed the doctor for his own death, his own fault. And there are still people who believe that James Cop's actions were justified. They're wrong. I doubt if, if any of us would justify destroying a family like that. But we might justify hurting someone with our words and our actions because we're right and they're wrong. We don't have anything to apologize for. We're just speaking the truth. But hurt them, too bad doesn't mean we stop speaking the truth. This means we think about how we're saying it. And so we, we think, well, they don't back the right candidate, so I have every right to verbally abuse them. They don't have the correct view about issue like homosexuality, so I have the right to verbally attack them. They're atheists, so I have the right to call them names and vilify their reputation. I have nothing to apologize for. You see, the problem is that's the way most of the world thinks. And and as children of God, as as followers of Christ, we're called to think differently, radically. We can disagree, we can debate, we can argue, but when things get out of hand, we should be the first ones to step up and say, you know what, I'm sorry. Sometimes we're hesitant to say, I'm sorry, because it makes us feel vulnerable, particularly to the person that we've offended. What if they use my acknowledgement against me 
I don't want to look weak and guilty. And you know, our legal system feeds that into us all the time because we're continually told, don't admit fault. You have an accident, don't admit fault. You do something wrong, don't admit fault. And, and I understand there's a reason for that. And, and I understand that why we've created things like no-fault insurance and no-fault divorce and those kinds of things. It, I know it's, it's a response to the, the adversarial situations that are often a part of, of situations like that. And, and, and it's painful, and, it, and it, it, hopefully it helps. But it gets into our blood and our thinking. And sometimes, when a profession does something wrong... And, and it, it bothers us or it hurts us or we're, something happens to us, sometimes all we really want to hear is someone say, I'm sorry, we blew it. We'll take care of it. Sometimes we're hesitant to say, I'm sorry, because we're afraid that people will think less of us if they know what we've done. So We try to hide it and ignore it, and we hope it just goes away, but it seldom if ever does. Maybe we struggle to say, I'm sorry, because we didn't do it intentionally, so if we didn't mean to do it, we're not responsible. But the psalmist says, how can I know all the sins lurking in my heart? Cleanse me from these hidden faults. God, I have done things that I didn't mean to do, but they hurt people. Forgive me. Maybe we struggle to say, I'm sorry, because we don't want to enable a person's behavior. It wouldn't be a problem if they weren't so sensitive. All of it's justification. And in our justifications, we think we can just forget about saying, I'm sorry. People will get over it. It'll blow over. Things will smooth out. All the while, we don't realize it's eroding our relationship. Now, granted, there are some people who, um, who say, I'm sorry, almost as habit. It's sort of the natural response to whatever happened. My, my grandmother was like that. My grandmother, who was 96, died early in the spring, and she was uh, a wonderful Christian woman, kind and gentle and considerate. As a child, I always loved going to her house, and I I vowed that when I grew up, I was going to build a house right next to her so I could be near her all of my life. And my my dad loved to remind me of that, particularly when she was in the retirement center and then in a nursing home. And uh, but even even when Alzheimer's took away her memory and her ability to think clearly. The people that that worked with her could not stop talking about what a kind, gentle, loving woman she was. But she did tend to take the blame for whatever happened. I remember one Christmas, we were at my aunt and uncle's house, and my aunt forgot to turn the oven on to cook the turkey. And we didn't realize it until we got up the next morning and thought, hmm, we don't smell anything. And my grandmother, first thing, said, it's my fault. I should have gotten up and reminded you. I'm like, what are you talking about? You have anything to do with it? We always used to joke that if some catastrophe happened on the other side of the world, grandma would find some way to think that she had had something to do with it, causing it. But let's be honest, that's not typically our problem. The problem is we don't like to say those words at all. Of course, when you say, I'm sorry, there are, there are appropriate and inappropriate ways of saying that. I asked some people to tell me what's their favorite part about the game of sorry. And 
One person said that uh, my favorite thing about sorry is beating other people around the board. It feels like you're on a chase, and it does. You're trying to catch up to people. Another said my favorite thing about sorry is seeing someone else's piece slide down uh, the, uh, the slide thing. And another said my favorite thing about sorry is that you're never really out of contention until the very end of the game. There's always hope, however slim, that they might get stuck and you can keep moving ahead. And then someone else answered, my favorite thing about sorry is that you apologize even though you're not really sorry. Sorry. That's not limited to a board game. There are different ways of saying sorry. Some ways are honestly unconvincing. A child hurts another child and the parent says, now you apologize to him. I'm not doing it. Say it again. Look, you apologize. Finally, you, you pressure the child enough, threaten them enough that they say, okay, and how, did they, well, how does it come out usually? Sorry. I'm sorry. Right? And you're thinking, wow, that was from the heart. That was, <laughs> they meant that every word of it, they meant that. And what does a parent say when that happens? Wait a second, that's not good enough. Now say it like you mean it. Exodus 10 talks about Pharaoh and the children of Israel. And finally, after so many plagues, he says, I'm sorry for what I've done. You guys go. And the next day, he changed his mind and chases after them. And you can almost hear in the background God saying, Pharaoh, that's not good enough. Say it like you mean it. King Saul tries to take David's life and laments and says, I'm sorry. And the next day, he's right back after him again, chasing him around the countryside. And you can almost hear God saying, Saul, that's not good enough. Say it like you mean it. The nation of Israel continues to turn away from God. And God brings upon them punishment, and they repent, and they say, I'm sorry. And and God relents and releases the, the pressure, and they're right back to what they were doing before. People go into exile, and those who are left are lamenting, and God helps them. And then they go right back to their sin again. And and in Jeremiah, God says that Judah has only pretended to be sorry. He says, I listen to their conversations, and what do I hear? Is anyone sorry for sin? Does anyone say, what a terrible thing I've done? No. They're all just running down the path of sin as swiftly as a horse rushing into battle. You can almost hear God in the background saying, that's not good enough. Say it like you mean it. What does it mean to say it like you mean it? I think it has to involve our actions, our attitude. The words, speaking the words are important. But they have only have credibility when our actions back them up. It can't just be words we say. It has to be something we do, something about our behavior as we speak the words and after we speak the words gives validity and credibility to the words. So when we read the scriptures, God says that that true repentance, true acknowledgement of sin is going to involve listening to him and turning from that sin. It's being ashamed of our behavior enough to want to change it. 
It's involving humility and sorrow and repentance. It's turning from the things we've done. We've all had people at some time or another come to us and say, I'm sorry that happened. And the next day they treat us the exact same way again. And our natural response is to wonder, did they really mean that or not? And we all struggle with being consistent. We all struggle with changing our behavior. But something different needs to be a part of those words. It seems to me that the most sincere apologies are those when we aren't looking for something in return. We're just simply trying to to acknowledge our point of problem. Not trying to make people like you, just trying to take responsibility. Not trying to get off the hook, just trying to take responsibility. Not trying to ease your guilt, just trying to take responsibility for what you've done. And sometimes taking responsibility and stepping up and saying I'm sorry and, and changing our behavior, sometimes it can, we can see almost an immediate beginning of the healing process. But sometimes we don't see that. Sometimes it takes a long period of time for healing to come. And sometimes it doesn't come, but that's not our responsibility because other people are involved. God is saying to us, you acknowledge your part in this. You acknowledge your sin against that person. You acknowledge your wrong attitude or your wrong behavior or those wrong words. That's all I'm asking of you in this moment. You start it. And then back it up with what you do and your attitude and the ongoing work of the relationship. And maybe one of the ways of testing the sincerity of our apology is how we respond when it takes a while for people to come around. When we don't feel like they've let us off the hook, we're still wrestling with the guilt. I suspect that Deep inside of us, we struggle to say, I'm sorry, because ultimately, we're not sure it's all that important to God. But the psalmist reminds us that our relationship with God begins with acknowledging our sin. We don't cover it up. We confess our transgressions. And if that's the beginning of our relationship with God, it's going to be the beginning of healing our relationships with other people. And ultimately saying, I'm sorry, is foundational to a relationship with human beings because it's foundational to our relationship with God. And so God says to the Israelites, when you come aware of the guilt of your sin, confess it. When you confess with your, sin, your sins and the, and the sins of your fathers, that's what I'm looking for. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus says to us, Forgive us, or we say to, to, we pray, forgive us our debts, our sins, our trespasses, as we forgive others. This passage from Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable of two men who come to the temple to pray, the tax collector and the Pharisee, and he says, only one of them leaves in the right relationship with God. And it's the tax collector. Because he came to God And humility said, forgive me, for I am a sinner. And I 
worry that our hesitancy to admit our sins against one another is a reflection of our hesitancy to admit our sin against God. The scriptures tell us that if we'll come, if we'll confess, if we'll acknowledge our sin to God and to other people, God will be merciful to us. He will be faithful and forgive us. James says our confession leads to healing through the grace of God if we acknowledge our sins. Pastor and author John Ortberg tells a story of many years ago, early in his marriage. He and his wife sold their Volkswagen Beetle to buy the first really nice piece of furniture. It was a sofa. He says it was a pink sofa, but when you pay that much money for it, they call it a mauve sofa. And he said, the, the, the man at the sofa store told us how to take care of it, what to do, we took it home. He said, you want to know when we got that home what the number one rule in our house became? Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't play near the mauve sofa. Don't eat around the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't breathe on the mauve i tell you what, don't even think about the mauve sofa. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But on the mauve sofa, you may not sit, for in the day you sit thereon, you will surely die. <laughs> That's the rule of the house. And so then one day came the fall. There appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. His wife called all the children, and called, called the man at the sofa factory first, and the guy was telling her how bad that was. So she called all the children together to look at the stain on the sofa. Laura, who was about four, Mallory about two and a half, Johnny was maybe six months old. And they're all sitting there looking at this stain on the sofa. She says, children, do you see that? That's a stain. That's a red jelly stain. And the man at the sofa store says it's not coming out, not for all eternity. Children, do you know how long eternity is? It's how eternity is how long we're going to sit here until one of you confesses (laughs) to who put the red jelly stain on the mauve sofa. And for a long time they just sat there. Until Mallory finally cracked. He said, I knew she would. She said, Laura did it. Laura said, No, I didn't. There was dead silence for a long time. He said, I knew none of them would confess to putting that stain on the sofa because they had never seen their mom so mad as she was that day. He said, I knew that none of them would confess to, to putting that stain on that sofa because they were imagining sitting for all eternity in the timeout chair. He said, I knew none of them were going to confess to putting that stain on the sofa because, in fact... I put the stain on the sofa. And I wasn't saying a word. (laughs) And he said, here's the truth of it. We've all stained the sofa. We've all hurt one another. And my question is, to whom... Do you need to say, I'm sorry? 
whom do you need to say, I'm sorry? Will you say it? Heavenly Father, give us grace and courage and mercy to acknowledge our sin and to go to whomever you direct us and to say, I'm sorry. Father, we need you. And we pray that you will indeed give us courage and grace to do what you ask. In the name of Christ Jesus.